Oh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Neil Sharp. I'm a partner at Penn Partnership and also the host for this podcast. And today, really lucky to be joined by two of our associate partners, Mary Wong and Leo Chancellor. And I'll ask them to introduce themselves in a second. But what we're going to do, we're going to explore a particularly sort of deep dive into one of the sectors in which we work, which we think has got some interesting challenges ahead. And also, it's got a number of areas where it probably needs to make some changes, particularly focused around the customer. And we thought it'd be quite fun and interesting to really kick that subject around and, and say, do a bit of a deep dive into that. But before I do that, why don't I just introduce Mary and Leo. Mary, do you want to say a few words about yourself and perhaps why you're interested in the subject? Absolutely. Thanks, Neil. Lovely to be on the podcast today. So my background, I, I work in the investment management and wealth space, and I'm really close to the, the digital side of that world. I'm quite passionate around, you know, how do we engage with consumers in the right way? How can we leverage digital technologies and sort of move the industry a little bit further forward in terms of being able to service kind of real people in a, in a way really that's more indicative of how people kind of interact with technology and reality, where sometimes I think and across some of the, the wealth industry, we're perhaps a little bit behind where we could be. So really interested today in this topic and uh, looking forward to it. Great stuff. Thanks, Mary. Leo, what about yourself? I, like Mary, have worked in the wealth investment management industry for most of my career. So the team I work in at Penn, I think started out way back in the day working for a retail wealth platform. So kind of got exposure to that end of the market at the beginning of my career and then through various roles and in consulting have worked you know, with a huge range of firms from investment managers to private client wealth managers, multifamily offices. So I think seeing seen kind of all spectrums how those type of businesses deal with their clients so i think like mary i had some uh, some of my own observations that there's there's probably quite a lot of change that parts of that industry need to start thinking about some some parts of the industry are further progressed than others but i think in in the work that we do we get to see how businesses interact with their customers on a regular basis and having seen that kind of broad spectrum from the retail end of the market up to the, the kind of ultra high net worth wealth managers i think there's a lot that can be learned by businesses across that spectrum um, from different approaches that are being taken and also outside the industry too great stuff thank you so you're both really well placed with some practical examples and i'm sure you'll share quite a few things as you go through and i guess the the objective today is to not only explore the subject but i guess share a bit of best practice and share some thinking around you know how we think this sector might move forward before we get into that let's try and debunk some of this jargon so not everybody listening to this today is going to understand all these terms so um let's try and break it down into i often use this technique in a workshop you know terminology that perhaps uh, at least a 16 year old maybe even an eight-year-old might understand if you were talking to them about this so Let's just talk very quickly about what a private wealth manager actually is. I mean, there's some simple words there. So from my understanding, these are firms that run investments for their clients as their main activity. So providing what we call full discretionary management, i.e. you kind of tell them what you're trying to achieve over what period. You might give them a little bit of guidance as to what you want them to do specifically, but then they go off and they they basically have discretion, i.e. the term, to make decisions and do things with your money based on that kind of mandate, as we call it, that trust that you've given them and, and off they go. And 
They might do that by advising as well. So they might actually provide some specific advice around how to go about doing certain things. And I guess in some cases as well, if someone picks up the telephone and says, I know you're managing that part of the portfolio, but can you just go and do this? What we call execution only, there's an element of that going on as well. So I guess that's a reasonable high-level description. Uh, And I guess the value added, if you like, the thing that the client really values is the personalized service. When you get into this marketplace, this is not a mass market thing. It doesn't tend to be, you know, thousands to thousands, many to many. This is very much a kind of bespoke service that's offered to individuals who have a uh, you know a, a good amount of money to invest or indeed in some cases a lot of money to invest so this is a little bit different perhaps to high street financial services this is very much this bespoke personalized service almost in many cases on a one to one basis for different clients i also know that firms often offer other services associated with this kind of market. So, for example, estate planning, you know, thinking about how you might pass on your wealth to your dependents for the future, tax planning, legal services, accountancy, those kinds of things as well. And I guess there's partnering that goes on as well. Before I go on, I'm not the expert in this. Does that sort of capture what a a private wealth manager is? Have either of you got anything specific to add in terms of a description so that people understand what we're talking about? Um, No, I think you you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think there's no hard and fast definition of where the market starts and finishes. There are firms that provide those sorts of services to people with rather small pots of money to invest, as you said, kind of people who have a, a much larger pot of investable assets. It really depends on on the firm, the type of people in the firm as to where they'll kind of draw the line in the size of the client portfolio that they'll take on. But I don't think there's anything else specific that I would add. Now, what's the what's the typical bottom end? I mean, what, what, where does this market kind of start, if I can put it that way? What, what sort of investable assets would somebody need to have really to become a candidate for, if you like, for these kinds of services generally? I think I think it, it really does depend on the firm and the type of investment offering that they're putting their clients into. There's a point at which you know, if you're investing in direct equities, saving a couple of hundred pounds a month, probably you know it isn't cost effective. But I, I've come across firms that you know, deal with very wealthy families, but also are happy to take on clients who are kind of in their mid thirties to early forties who've hit that kind of high earning years if you like and may not have lots of investable assets to put in the portfolio straight away but have the ability to perhaps you know fill up their ISA on an annual basis okay anything to add Mary just so before we move on just to clarify this market for people no I think I think Leo has kind of mentioned all the extra points I would as well okay great and just the other point I just wanted to cover really at the beginning here is you know a lot of the asset management space or sort of thinking about as that starts to interface with customers, if you like, is often intermediated. There's an intermediary that would sit between the customer and the firm actually investing the money. Am I right in saying here that you kind of get a bit of a mix? So in in this situation, you might get some firms that go direct to customers, but you've also got some that would deal through intermediaries. Is that right? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, fine. Again, it's always an important distinction because obviously when we're thinking about client or customer experience and we're thinking about some of the changes that might need to be made, defining who the customer is and that old argument that I'm sure uh, we could spend probably an entire podcast debating who the customer Mm -hmm. is. Is it the intermediary or the customer, the end customer? But okay, no, that's great. So thank you for that. But let's get stuck into thinking about 
you know what what are some of the changes and and what's happening in this market and um i guess it's probably reasonable to sort of describe the market as quite different from that 20 or even 10 years ago i.e there have been changes it's not as though the market stayed completely still but perhaps that changes haven't gone far enough i don't know if that's a, a good way of sort of starting the conversation so perhaps thinking about you know setting the context of wider financial services you know why is it that wealth managers in your view need to consider more radical change than might have come before mary do you want to sort of kick us off on that sure so i think that it's it's all about the the end investor the customer and in this case i'm talking about the end consumer not not an intermediary i think that expectations have changed so we know that now there is a huge preference for you know digital capability right i want to pick up my phone log in somewhere see see what i've got and expectations around time so if i if i have a question and i want to know something i'm expecting that to be answered pretty quickly you know if you tell me i'll get back to you in 3 days it's that's not really acceptable anymore and if you think of these customers you know a lot of whom may have more wealth than the average individual then actually with with more wealth often you've got even higher expectations around some of that service and and so i think the the overall world that we live in has shifted and the question is well how well have some of these firms been able to keep up with that change and also thinking about you know i may want to pick up the phone i may want to do something more digitally and our firms able to cater for all the different preferences and and how consumers might want to interact with them i think that's kind of one big point for me yeah, sure. Leo, what do you want to add to that in terms of where you see perhaps more change needed or perhaps where they're not going far enough at this stage? I think Mary's right. That one of the key things for me is the way that not just in financial services, but outside of financial services as well, everything is shifting towards digital first service. I think if you look at, you look at kind of retail banking, I can't remember the last time that I went into a a branch of a bank to actually make a transaction or sign up for a product it's all pretty much done from your phone nowadays so i think with with industries like banking and others moving towards digital first service and the convenience that, that gives to the end customer i think that drives a kind of general preference amongst amongst investors for that type of service and when they interact with firms they expect that that digital interaction to be slick well designed deliver what it is that they're looking for in a, in a low effort way. But personally feel that at the kind of higher end of the wealth management market, firms have made kind of small steps towards becoming more digital, but they've tended to focus on replicating their existing service model through a client portal, for example, rather than thinking about, okay, can we use some of this, this new technology to improve the way that we deliver service to our clients and do things a little bit differently. So I think there's yeah a lot of work still to be done, especially at the, the top end of the market, on how firms interact with clients in a digital manner. And I think the firms in this market have also kind of benefited over the the last decade and perhaps longer from, from rising markets since the financial crisis. So AUM has, has increased for them. So the fees that they've generated off their, their portfolios of clients has, you know, kind of been relatively steady or increasing. And because clients have been seeing good performance in their investments, they've kind of excused a lack of innovation in the way that service is delivered. But I think 
for some of the reasons that Mary's talked about and I've just talked about. I think I think attitudes are changing now and the ability to get away with a poor digital experience or insisting on kind of manual interaction with clients is you're not going to be able to do that for much longer, I don't think. No, okay. So definitely some stuff there around digital. And just on that point, I mean, maybe we we run the risk here of um, in talking in stereotypes, but when this market's talked about, I guess the first thing that springs to people's minds, certainly driven by history, is perhaps older customers who like to go into a physical location or certainly see somebody or perhaps even receive and we joke about it quite you know quite often the sort of leather bound portfolio report coming through and everything else and and indeed i'm sure that's still the case in a number of wealth managers and it's valued by certain customer groups but is part of that driven by a shift in wealth coming down to younger generations or you know because i suppose within all of that digital great yeah we can all see a good reason for that but but what if the customer doesn't want it and i'm guessing what what you're sort of alluding to there is the fact that perhaps there are more customers that do want that now or am i just being completely stereotypical in my my view saying well anyone who's over the age of x doesn't like digital so what's your view on that mary i think that more across the board we're seeing people who perhaps may fall into those older categories interacting with digital as as leo said there's retail banking you know um more and more people i think are using even things like you know the online only banks today or 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 re- open to dabbling in that, even if it's perhaps not their main current account for when they go traveling. So I, I don't think it's a valid stereotype. I think actually there are some themes that sort of go across the board. But your point around that sort of, you know, gold plated leather bound volume, I, I think there are ways to create that sense of, you know, whether it's sort of a, a luxury special VIP experience that's, that you can do, yes, in person partly. And, and there may always be a, a demand for an in-person contact, right? Particularly in this part of the market that, that really personal service is key but there are other ways to do that I might not want to take a leather bound volume home with me but for example do you know about me can you show how you know about me what are the digital ways of reflecting that back to me you know Leo and I we often talk about data Um, have you used the data that you've collected on me in a way that you've reflected some value back to me oh Mary have you thought about this or have you shown that you've really listened to things that I care about in terms of where I want my investments to go and therefore really designed this in a bespoke way and whether or not that is something in a digital format or in a physical format, I think firms just will become more flexible on that. But I do think it's an old stereotype. And I think that while there may still be customers who like to interact more in that way than, than not, I think that actually the, the whole wor- world is moving in that direction. And, and you know, there, there may be people who are very digitally enabled who still like to go into retail bank when they need to for certain certain events, right? So it's not a one size fits all, but certainly there's a there's a huge move more into that digital space. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So again, what's in my mind there when you're talking, again, another hackneyed piece of jargon, but omni-channel, i.e., you know, sometimes you may want to see somebody, you may want to speak to somebody, you you might want to actually have a piece of paper in your hand for whatever reason, because it might be a critical moment in your life and you want some kind of reassurance that sits around that. Other times you might want self-serve and you might want to make sure that, yeah, you can still see the same thing or you might be able to do certain things yourself and it's using the same data, but you might want it in a very different context, i.e. online, on your phone or whatever, because it's more convenient at that point. So so the whole thing about omni-channel and thinking about how retailers have tackled that, I guess what I'm hearing you say is it's almost transposing those those ideas and those thoughts are actually into a market like this that traditionally hasn't thought that way 
Absolutely. I think there's lots of lessons that this industry can learn from other industries and and indeed, you know, kind of building that sense of a VIP special club, loyalty club, what are the extras that you might receive? And I also think that there's an aspect of the market that's shifting where, yes, of course, people need their investment return. And that's a key part of going to a private wealth manager. But also people are, are more thinking about the qualitative side of that and, you know, the ESG side of that in terms of where is my investment going? What are my values and and are my values coming through in that process alongside that investment return as well? So I think it's more than just about the product. It's actually about my overall experience and how is this firm helping me to achieve my my life objectives in the way that I think is is right for, for myself and, you know, for society? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm also guessing that I'm sort of trying to think of some of my, probably quite limited, but my experience of working with wealth managers of this type, you know, quite often it almost feels like most of the activities that take place are an endless cycle of quarterly reporting, i.e. they get to the end of their quarterly reporting cycle and then it's kind of like deep breath, here we go again, and it takes another 10 weeks to do the 12 weeks of quarterly reporting. Is self-serve much part of this market, do you think, going forward as well? I mean, Leo, you talk there about different business models. I mean, we've talked about a number of things, their data, personalization, lack of innovation. I mean, what other kind of broader business model impact do you think there might be as well or, or could be in this marketplace? I think uh, I think that's a good example to, to call on is the kind of quarterly reporting cycle and a lot of firms do still operate in that way. Uh, obviously there's a lot of effort involved because the processes behind sourcing all the data for the quarterly reports and pulling all of that together are, are usually you know quite old and uh, you know reliant on legacy systems. So I think you know, firms can start to find a way to interact with customers on a more regular basis that doesn't require you know, an investor to turn up at an office or have a phone call with somebody. But if they can provide kind of more frequent, insightful data, whether that be you know over a website or on the phone, I think that that goes some way to starting to to change the way the firm goes around operating and delivering service to clients. So if you can have a more regular interaction with your client, do you need to make such a big song and dance of the quarterly reporting cycle anymore? Probably not. And that probably releases quite a lot of operational effort within the firm that can focus on more value-add activities. But it, it, it relies, as Mary said earlier, you know, data is key. It relies on having access to the right data, knowing that that data is you know, is of a good quality and correct, and then being able to present that to a client in a in a way that is easy to produce and easy for the client to digest. I guess that you know we've seen examples of where firms have tried to deliver things to clients in a different way, such as as reporting, but have have kind of executed it quite badly, and it's ended up damaging the customer experience of anything and creating more effort for relationship management teams when a client phones up and and has lots of questions about something that you've sent them without somebody there to explain it to yeah yeah okay and just a a final part of this i mean you you just mentioned damaging the customer experience or the client experience i guess one of the things that occurs to me as we're talking this through is that a number of organizations that have gone through really substantial transformation have done so with a mind's eye on managing and and deliberately creating a customer experience and really being mindful of that. I often find in this space that the first reaction will be, well, we know our clients 
fantastically well because we provide this really personal service to them and therefore we don't need to worry about customer experience in perhaps the way that we describe it but actually probably missing the point insofar as that's not about necessarily the one-to-one relationship you've got is having that much more holistic understanding of needs and aspiration of the client and then deliberately going about and really thinking through the customer journey thinking about how you might make things as easy as possible for the client that sort of thing so would it be fair to say Mary, in that situation, you know, maybe just a focus on customer experience in a very systematic fashion is also a change that's needed in this sector. I think so. And, and making sure that that is sort of inherent in, in everything, right? Often we, we see customer experience tends to be centered in around at those who are on the front line of those customer interactions. But I think more and more, both for the kind of survival in this industry, I think unless you really understand the customer, well, then it's going to limit you in terms of just product and service innovation, as well as making sure that kind of everything in the firm and, and, and how you service that individual actually is, is meeting or exceeding their expectations and giving you that that loyalty that you're going to be looking for mm. i think there's you know quite a lot of frameworks out there and i know neil you're you're a huge advocate around customer experience and the framework that you can put in place to to do that and i think that you know the benefits of it can be in in lots of different areas of a business and i think particularly in this space it's it's around our, are they really being innovative in the proposition and the services and digital or not in that space? And then making sure that they understand that experience all the way through from the first interaction through to the end and, and, and ongoing across a customer's lifetime and the different events in, in their lifetime as well. Also, I think it's really important in part of that work is understanding all the different types of customers that are out there. And, you know, as as perhaps a new generation comes in and you see that wealth shifting from perhaps they're kind of the old or current customers into, into new generation, actually, do these firms really have a grasp of that new generation? And is, you know, is their innovation diverse enough in their thinking? And actually, when you if you implement that kind of customer experience framework in the right way, it's about capturing the data that gives you the insight to be able to use and kind of put into to the propositions and services that you design. And so for me, that's a really key life cycle. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. All right. So, I mean, we've talked about a number of things there. We've talked about data, personalization, customer experience, digital. None of this is kind of rocket science, right? These, these are things that we do day in, day out in our business. We do it for a variety of things. What, what's, what are some of the things that are holding organizations in this space back what what kind of blockers and barriers do you think there are that are actually preventing some of this happening and and therefore possibly becoming a a sort of a future growth blocker as well leo what what, what sort of some of the things that you can see well i think i think we kind of touched on it briefly earlier but we see in 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 our work we go into lots of firms that are relying quite heavily on legacy pieces of technology that have been in the firm for you know decades sometimes with very little change or all the change has happened around the edges of a core piece of technology. And there's a kind of complicated web of technology and data flows through that in a complicated way that means that for the, the kind of business user of that technology and, and data who wants to get access to it to help service their client, very difficult to easily get hold of the information that that they need. So I think that is a huge issue for uh, participants in in this industry is that reliance on legacy technology. And I think that a lot of firms have a lot of groundwork to do to 
improve the technology that they're using and the way that they um, kind of use data within the firm before they can get on to thinking about, okay, could we innovate our, our, our service model and deliver it via different channels, be that, that digital or otherwise, something that, that is a huge issue that a lot of firms have to address. And I think from an operational perspective, legacy technology as well has a shelf life and it starts adding more and more costs to the business to operate it because you rely on specialist resources to keep it going. It's more difficult to keep it up to date with regulatory changes. So you know, not only does it impact the client experience, it also impacts the bottom line in terms of increasing cost and risk within the business as well. Okay, so good old-fashioned <laughs> legacy technology issue. Not easy to solve, but perhaps we'll come back to the sort of short and long-term things that people need to consider. But what else? I mean, Mary, I mean, uh, technology, yes, obviously, big part of it. What about the operating models overall that these companies adopt? Do you think there's there's a kind of legacy issue there as well? Yeah, trying to think of whether I call it legacy. Yes, I suppose in a way it is around legacy operating models. And sometimes when we look at sort of firms who are moving into more digital space, they take what they already do and look at ways that they can bolt on some digital capability. Whereas sometimes inherently, and in order, as kind of Leo described, to get to that level of kind of cost optimization that allows you to to make investments in new technology or innovate a little bit more, you you've kind of got to have that optimum level, right? So I think I think there's there's two sides to that. One is have you really looked at cost to serve? have really looked at um, the operating model and, and understood ways of perhaps being more efficient in the structure of the teams and how you service your customers that actually sets you up for the longer term. I think there, there's one part in that, uh, you know, and looking at how firms are set up. So the second piece around the operating model challenge, I think, is also around the fact that this can be a bit of a daunting challenge, not only because when you start looking at moving towards more more digital journeys or perhaps addressing some of the legacy issues, whether it's tech or, or operating model, it can seem like, well, if I sort of open one part of the box and suddenly I've got to open everything. And remembering that some of these you know, these firms may not have had to, you know, to really need to look at technology. So from an op model point of view, we shouldn't assume that there is sort of the inherent skill set and the people who can sort of put together a tech program and deliver that digital expertise. I think it's really important for, for firms to sort of recognise what they do really well and, and partner or bring in suppliers to help them in on that. And also that balance of, you know, let's let's have a bit of a maybe transformation Maybe that's looking at you know everything. Maybe it's proposition and and how we deliver our services, but actually, how do you pull together a, a kind of a a program of work where you can deliver things along the way, where it doesn't seem like oh gosh, it's going to take three to five years to even get you know one sort of thing done. Actually, it's that balance and it's that expertise around delivering that type of change. I think that's really key, and perhaps that's a challenge for some of these firms who who just aren't in that space on a day to day basis. Yeah, that's a good point. I was going to add something in on the operating model front. I think the way that a lot of these businesses have operated in terms of facing off to clients in the past has, has been to have you know a single client relationship manager or a, or a small team that manages a given client relationship. And I think that's fine from providing a personalized service and you know making somebody feel like they've got somebody on the end of the phone that, that probably understands them and knows their situation. The danger for firms of, of that setup is that as and when people move on from a business, 
the ability of the firm to defend those client relationships is massively diminished because beyond that relationship management team, you don't really have visibility or great visibility of, of that client relationship and, and a lot of the knowledge around a specific relationship might be held by a single individual. So I think there's a, there's a big risk point for firms there in the way that they've traditionally structured kind of relationship management teams. And this comes back to kind of implementing customer experience. Management teams should see that as a means to gain transparency over how customer relationships are being managed and, and how, uh, you know, what's important to clients, where, where is the service falling down, where is it really good. So I think with, without kind of thinking about customer experience in a methodical way, management teams don't get that transparency all the time, but they're relying on individuals. Yeah, okay. And let me just sort of put a bit of a challenge into that. So I would say, yeah, I totally get that. And obviously, I do that for a living. So I would agree with that element of it. But but surely the the one-to-one, the personal relationship, particularly when you get right up the scale, when you've got dealing with somebody who's got a, a very significant piece of wealth that they're, they're trying to manage, isn't that the whole point of these companies? I mean, how, how do you, from an operating model point of view, what kind of tactics or what kind of strategies can you adopt to prevent that one-to-one relationship risk that you you talk of and you know i i I guess just be interested in your views about how you you break that down either either of you i think you don't have to lose that one-to-one relationship to a kind of devolve responsibility for a client relationship to to a wider pool of people it comes down to how those relationship managers operating what's what's their role where does their role start and finish you know, are they trying to be all things to the client? Then when the client's got a query with their client report, is it then that person, you know, that, that single person that picks up the phone to, to listen to the query and understand the issue? Is it then an incumbent on them to go and resolve the issue? Or do they feel confident enough to outsource that to a, another part of the firm? So I think there are ways of Kind of setting the bounds of what that relationship management role entails so that means that you keep that that single point of contact and, and link into a firm but kind of set some boundaries around what that that individual does and is responsible for in terms of servicing the client so it's probably not efficient to have that person kind of doing a lot of the legwork of the requests that come through okay okay so it's about doing everything actually yeah so there's the actual face off itself i mean it's interesting I can see some parallels with us, actually, as a business. You know, you've got a personal relationship with a client that you may have held for many years, and chances are they'll pick up the phone to you if they need something doing. But if you've got good people around you and you make sure that that, that people can see where the specialisms lie within the firm and the fact that if you want that, then go to speak to Mary about it because she's the person that can do that. That's That feels like a, a kind of a logical progression, if you like, away from a, a one-to-one, definitely. And just picking up on a point you made earlier, Leo, and you know, we've been in, oh, we have ups and downs, obviously, and we had a quite a substantial shock about eighteen months ago when um, when COVID hit. But generally speaking, the lines looked pretty healthy going upwards since two thousand and ten, something like that. I mean, that, that I guess that breeds a number of things, really. If I can put it quite rudely for a moment, you know, maybe that just breeds a bit of complacency around, we don't need to worry about this stuff. You know, we, we can crack on because we're making good money and we're doing a good service for our clients. Perhaps we just don't have a burning platform that we need to deal with. And maybe that also 
covers up inefficiencies in the business. You know, if you're not worrying, and to your point you just made as well, Mary, you know, the, the, the point about tracking cost to serve and being very, very clear about that. You know, is there a degree of perhaps complacency bred by the nature of the conditions that we've been in? If we were more benign, perhaps it would be different. Is, is that a fair comment? Uh, I think definitely there's, and I think I made this point earlier on, that with a backdrop of kind of rising markets and increasing personal wealth over the last 10 or so years, it's, a lot of firms have got complacent and clients have been happy because investment performance has been good and they've seen the numbers going up. So they've kind of excused not poor levels of service, but kind of levels of service that, that don't align with the service that they see in other aspects of their life. So, you know, does it does it matter that I have to kind of get a paper report from my wealth manager on a quarterly basis and then pick up the phone to speak to him or her about it when the portfolio is performing well? Possibly not. But if I'm having to be more active in my interactions with my wealth manager because the portfolio is not performing so well, do I want to be picking up the phone to speak to somebody every time I want to check on how my uh, portfolio is doing, I'd probably rather, like my internet banking, log in on my phone and have the option of speaking to somebody if, if I had a specific question. So I think firms have kind of been able to be a bit complacent in innovation of service because of the, the broader market context, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mary, do you agree? You're, you're nodding. Absolutely, I agree. And I think as well, as we're seeing sort of the advice market start to innovate around pricing models, you know, not not just relying on an AUM sort of based fee and starting to look at people opting in and out. I think generally as well, particularly if if the market isn't automatically rising and, and perhaps there are more difficult times ahead, we might see perhaps investors, particularly those who are younger, who are starting to see these different models coming into the space. I, I think that these firms are going to need to justify what their pricing model is and, and the value over and above whatever the investment return might be and and i think you know there'll be a need to innovate in that space as well and and just to be quite specific about that because i guess not everyone might be fully aware so traditional model you take them the assets under management and you basically take a percentage of that a small percentage in in most cases but a percentage of that is as a fee yeah that's the kind of model what sort of first of all am i correct (laughs) yeah you're both nodding yeah so what, what kind of innovations are we seeing in pricing model what sort of shifts are we seeing what what kind of things are, are firms moving to so i think we've definitely seen a shift into you know fixed fees in the advice space so rather than an ongoing charge actually i have a specific uh, areas of, of advice i'm looking for it might be a pension review for example and i'll pay a fixed fee for that and then i may go off and either kind of self-serve in that exo space or you will direct my investments but i'm not necessarily tied into a long-term fee with you or into a long-term relationship even right and i guess that sort of in that space i guess we're seeing a mix of the the direct space uh, as well as the advice so i might opt into advice at certain points and therefore that kind of fixed fee model works for me whereas for perhaps a part of my portfolio i prefer to to just use a platform directly and manage my investments myself obviously for for these higher net worth clients that may not be the case they may have maybe they have their own pot as well but the majority of their wealth is is with a a wealth manager Um, but I think it's interesting I I think you know as 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 
customers maybe take a little bit more control of parts of their portfolio, want to see more transparency, visibility as a market just develops in there. I, I, I'm wondering how much flexibility actually they're going to start to want to see rather than just sort of a flat fee that, you know, is into per- perpetuity without the real, you know, the demonstration of the service behind it as well. Yeah. You know, if, I, if I'm just receiving a quarterly report, then really does that justify that level of fee? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So pay for what you get basically and, and <laughs> be able to see very clearly what that is and maybe even have a menu presented to you where you can actually pick and choose. Anything else from you, Lee? I mean, just sort of thinking about, I, I know we'll, we'll get on in a moment and just to sort of try and sum up some of the sort of short and long-term things that we think people might be needing to think about. But any other sort of innovations that you're seeing in the market, either in pricing or in other things, you know, maybe some examples of real beacons of light that we can shine a light on and say, wow, you know, these guys have really got it. I think you're starting to see some, well, I'll start again. I think there's there's a kind of myriad of firms that have sprung up over the last five to 10 years that are trying to do investment in a different way than has been done traditionally. You can go Firms like Nutmeg, for example, one of the you know one of the early robo advisors, you know, trying to approach kind of helping people with their investments in a different way, using a different business model, a different approach to client interaction. So there there are you know tens of firms, hundreds of firms out there that are trying to approach this issue of helping clients with investments in a in a different way to the traditional well-established firms. So I think most of the innovation is happening with these new companies that are entering the market. And what we're starting to see now is that some of those that are proving that their model can be successful are attracting the attention of some of the more established players who are thinking, rather than us trying to copycat and come up with our own version of that, we'll acquire that firm and build it into our offering. So, you know, Nutmeg is a is a good example where they have got to a certain size and have gained a certain amount of traction and then they've been you know, acquired by a much larger player in the market. And we're seeing more and more of that happening. So I think whilst firms, we've kind of been accusing firms of being a bit complacent and not innovating, they've clearly been firms that have been watching the innovation that's been going on in the market, seeing what 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 has worked and kind of buying up firms that that have an innovative solution. Yeah, yeah. Any other innovations that you're seeing, Mary? That you you know not just necessarily pricing, but perhaps uh, good examples of firms that are doing some of the kind of things that we've been talking about. I think probably one of the examples that springs to mind, and it is in a very different space, also in the direct space as well, which is interesting, is someone like Moneybox, where it's a very different part of the market. It's almost the opposite end of the market. But the way that they have built their app, so this is where you can you can kind of go into their application. It's a mobile app. Um, there's some general kind of educational information, and then you can invest in in sort of portfolios across an ISA, GIA, or I think they've launched a SIP now as well. But what's interesting about that app is that 
it's about how they engage with customers. You know, there's kind of alerts for different events in the year to encourage savings. It's very much built around allowing a customer to kind of have a regular ongoing plan or at certain times to just have that kind of top up and that whole roundup, which is the integration from a bank account. So rounding up your spare change, if I spent £3.50 on something, that extra 50p goes into my savings plan. And that integration between kind of my daily habits, my retail bank and my investing, that's fantastic, right? And I haven't had to do a whole lot to set that up. I, I think I, you can go in and log in within about half an hour, you're, you're, you know, you're all ready to go. And that for me is a really interesting place. And even though they're targeting perhaps the, the younger investors who don't have a lot to save, you know, they're they're setting, I suppose, an expectation, which is these younger investors may well grow up to have more wealth. Uh, and there is that kind of dynamic approach and that engaging approach, which is very, very different to, to some of these traditional firms and, and how they interact with you. Yeah. So I think that that will be a, a very interesting space to see. And, you know, we've seen examples from the US where there's those propositions that sort of have a mix of D to C and a bit of advice and maybe into wealth as well. So, you know, I'm interested to see sort of where the market lands on this. Is there is there going to be the same delineation between lower end of the market, advised mar- and direct and advised market and, and private wealth? Or are we going to see more mixed models coming into play, especially as some of the bigger players like some of the larger banks, for example, also start to move into the space as well as the newer entrants coming in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm minded as well of one of my previous guests, Sam Seaton, thinking about the work that Money Hub do and, and thinking about the sort of aggregated view of everything. And, and it's an interesting thought to think that even if you're an ultra high net worth individual, sort of integrating some of this stuff with other activities of life that you might be interested in. The other interesting point I was just going to make, which is um, slightly left field, but in my my previous guest, actually, the previous episode was a, a chap called Christoph Schuke, who'd written a book called Health Enthusiasm. And he puts forward the notion that every business is in the business of health. They're actually concerned or should be concerned with the the kind of the health and well-being of their customers. And increasingly, people are building propositions which... They might not be directly healthcare businesses, but they're thinking about some of the the kind of health and well-being dynamics uh, associated with their services. And I guess it would be hard to argue that your financial well-being isn't in some way either indirectly or directly linked to your kind of well-being, be it mental or physical, in terms of some of the outcomes that you can create. So it might be some very interesting models to create from that. But anyway, going going a bit left field there, as I say. Okay, so just sort of trying to bring all of this together then, and it's probably worth mentioning at this point, we've got a a white paper that's uh, hot off the press, which we um, will be providing to to anyone who wants it. But And there's a hell of a lot in there, so, you know, people can read that at their leisure. But let's just sort of think of this in in sort of short term and long term because we rattled through a whole load of stuff there about you know what the problems might be in some of the areas people need to address so what are some of the you know if if okay let me put it this way if you two are CEOs of a uh, or CEOs and a managing director of a wealth manager of this kind what are some of the short term things that you would dive into straight away leo perhaps starting with you what are the the the, the big things that you would you grab hold of and do quickly so i think one of the key things is making sure that all of the foundations are there for some of the stuff that you might want to do in the longer term. So I think there's a lot to be done for some firms on stabilizing and kind of optimizing their current operating model, technology, and looking at their current revenue cost base and seeing whether they can 
as well as rejigging the op model and looking at replacing technology, think about pricing their clients in a different way that drives better quality revenue from the book of clients that they do have. And I think it comes back to the pricing point. A lot of firms are, you know, kind of still pricing people on a percentage of AUM basis. That may be great for big client relationships, but if those big client relationships extend to kind of a full family of individuals and you're applying kind of very low pricing to a second or third generation person in a family group that's got a very small portfolio comparatively, is that is that really how you want to be pricing that client? So I think there's lots of levers that can be pulled to make sure revenue is is higher quality. And then on the cost-based side, I think it's all about looking at the operating model, refreshing technology, reducing the cost of, of operating through that, and also reducing the risk of operating through that. And, and through replacing technology, you'll be able to start to drive more value from the data that you do hold within the business. Okay. So yeah, I wonder if you're going to mention data. I mean, I think Mary, you mentioned it earlier, you know, the importance of being able to access quality data at the time you need it to both drive personalization at the right time, but but to surface the information and the data that you need at any point during the, uh, either a transaction with a client or indeed something you're doing internally, yeah, massively important. Absolutely. What else? I mean, we talked about CX, customer experience, and maybe some of the face-off points that organizations have i mean mary would you focus on that is that something in the short term or is it more of a long-term thing i i think in the short term there are definitely things from a cx point of view that you can do quickly and at very low cost if you're looking at the right way and you're able to sort of measure how customers are interacting with you there there are some very easy wins that, that you could look at so there's definitely short-term part of that i think there is a longer term piece that you could be doing alongside it but there's definitely benefits of doing part of that work and starting to build in that way of thinking in your teams starting to think about how your your front office teams are organized are there efficiencies there in terms of sort of some of the points that you raised as well and that kind of making sure that you've got that longevity and, and you're reducing any key person dependencies i think also in the short term you know we talked a little bit about how you can package products and services and actually is there a way to make your proposition as it stands today actually perhaps a bit more modular so that customers can opt in or out can they sort of create their own bespoke service that aligns with your current pricing proposition without any additional cost and and there are perhaps some things that you could do without actually inherently rewriting your proposition it's it's more about how it's being positioned to customers and and, and allowing them some level of customization and then we've talked about ESG already. Obviously, I'm you know that's a, a big topic, and it comes back to the data piece as well. It's it's you know how are firms collecting the preferences of their customers and matching it into um, their investments from an ESG lens. I think that's something in the short term that's going to be more and more important. I think we've seen on the on the ESG front across our kind of asset management client base, firms in that sector. Are, taking this very seriously now i think wealth managers are probably a step or two behind where where the asset managers are and i think it, it kind of becomes an important point when wealth managers think about where their clients for the next kind of 15 to 30 years are going to come from they're going to come from the generations where esg issues are, are a higher priority so if they don't have a 
that they don't have an answer on how they're incorporating ESG into their investment strategies or even their, their corporate kind of view on ESG. They're going to struggle to remain relevant to a generation of people or generations of, of people that are coming through who will be their next clients who, for those people, these issues are really important. So I think that's something that, alongside all the other things that we've just talked about, it's a short-term focus. <laughs> ESG has to be on that list too for the reason that people are starting to care more and more about this. And if you don't have an answer, you're going to struggle to remain relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and maybe even to sort of a lower level of granularity than perhaps other parts of, 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 of the industry where if I'm a more high net worth customer and I'm paying perhaps a little bit more, you know, have you really understood all of my different preferences around ESG rather than just offering me a kind of a standard suite of ESG model portfolios or, or et cetera? You know, I really care about the environment or I really care about impact society. So how have you really customised my wealth plan according to those specific, very specific preferences over and above a kind of a broad ESG stamp? And it'll be really, I think it'll be really interesting to see how wealth managers respond in that space. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, so that's the short term. So you two are running this firm. You've got a busy few months ahead of you by the sound of it, if that's the short term. <laughs> Just going to, you know, change the pricing and uh, put some frameworks in and get the data sorted. CX. What about the long term? What are you going to do in the long term? What, I mean, obviously, I, I'm being a bit facetious, but, you know, I guess a lot of those short term things then start to flow into the long term insofar as you start embedding those further and start really leveraging some of the potential benefits? I mean, what are the kind of the, the high-level long-term things that you then start to address once you've tackled some of those those short-term bits, Leo? So I think one of the key things is you know, wealth management is all about a tailored client experience as a way of delivering that today, which is via a, a person-to-person interaction. That doesn't necessarily need to change, but there are you know, the other channels that we talked about that you can start supplementing that that person-to-person relationship with. I think you've got to think about that in, in the long term. How do you want to develop the ways that you interact with your, your client base as a firm? And, you know, assuming you can get the technology and data right, can you start leveraging that data within your firm to enhance that that client experience and make it more tailored? Can you Can you kind of front run client wants and needs through insight from the data that you hold on that client. So I think firms should be looking longer term about how they leverage some of that data within their organization to further tailor that client experience, whether it's delivered person to person, digitally or you know, face to face. So I think that that's a key focus for the long term and that involves quite a lot of strategic thinking, I think, to understand how the proposition might evolve. Um, but I don't think you can do that in the short term unless you've already kind of got the technology and data at your fingertips ready to, ready to deploy. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and Mary, we, we talked sort of during the middle of this about kind of mindsets within the firm shifting and that sort of thing. I mean, do you, do you think there's a sort of a cultural shift that needs to go alongside some of this stuff, if I can put it that way, sort of just just kind of almost pivoting the whole perspective of the organization. I mean, you know, we talked a lot there about true client centricity, but, you know, what other cultural shifts do you think might need to to come in to actually make these firms more successful in the long term? 
Yes, Neil, I think mindset shift is a really important part of this. Of course, firms are successful for a reason today. So there are parts of what they do that they shouldn't lose. There, there are USPs that make them who they are and, and, and they need to hold on to those. But if we're moving into this new world and particularly into you know, a digital way of interacting with customers that is is not the way that customers are serviced today, then I think there's there's a, a whole mindset around that continuous improvement, the willingness to challenge how things are done today and think about, well, could we do that slightly better or differently? What do customers, newer customers that are coming to us today, what are their expectations? And are we able to kind of flexibly adjust to that? You know, maybe there's a sort of a mindset around innovation where, where we're going to try new things and they may or may not work out. But we're willing to bring that whole process of continual improvement and testing into the way that we work. And do we have individuals in the firm who are looking at that as part of their role? Potentially, if the longer term objective is to to be more data enabled, to be more digital, to perhaps look at some of the legacy technology and, and, and move it into a more modern space, then to what extent, you know, do we need to have people who who understand that or partner with or perhaps even look to acquire um, technology or work with partners in the industry around that? And I think that might, might be a different way of, of operating as well. And it's not to say that you need to have, you know, your own in-house tech team building this stuff. Actually, it's more about what are you bolting on and how are you interacting with the rest of the financial ecosystem in terms of plugging into capability that's already out there. Yeah. And, and I think that's a slightly different mindset as well. Yeah. So either partnering or buying capability. And I guess general m and I mean, there's hundreds of these firms out there, right? And well, I guess some of them haven't got that many clients, although they've probably got a fair bit of cash. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. But, uh, or, yeah. Or perhaps, you know, the kind of, we've seen a lot of consolidation and, and, and mergers where, you know, parties coming together to to kind of really bring together that investment opportunity and, and explore some of these digital capabilities. I think it's it'll be interesting to see what happens in that space. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, goodness me, lots to address there. And as I said earlier, yeah, we've got a, a paper. So um, if anyone's listening to this and they'd like to get in touch, there's a, a form on the, the site you'll be able to readily access to just uh, let us know that you want it. And I guess that's a, a useful summing up. I mean, Leo, I know that you've been particularly involved in the construction of that. I guess the paper covers a lot of the things we've been talking about today and more, yes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of probably covers what we just discussed on the short-term agenda and the longer-term agenda that we think that um, should be considering and as we you know we talked earlier about some of the drivers as to why we think those things should be on firms agendas so that that's also covered in in the paper as well in more detail but i think there's there's huge amounts of opportunity out there for firms that want to take it i, I do think that the way the wider financial services industry is going and the way that other sectors are going i think firms that that don't take on board some of the trends that are happening and, and make changes to, to try and capitalize on those are going to really struggle to kind of grow and potentially survive over the next over the next decade. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Final word from you, Mary. Anything else you want to say before we before we wrap up? You don't have to, by the way. So I'm just, just giving you the opportunity. I think I'd probably just just say that I think that all the different varying players in this industry, whether you've got you know the kind of private wealth firms or advised firms or even kind of firms who are more focused on the direct market. I think there's a lot that 
you know, there's a lot that we can all learn from each other in that space, you know, and, and the technology that we're talking about and the insight and the data side of things, it goes across the board. And I think it'd be really interesting to see kind of where we land on some of this and, and perhaps even how we as an industry will start to need to share data between all of these various parties, including some of the fund manufacturers, the regulators sort of going in that direction anyway with consumer duty, for example, and looking at customer outcomes across the board. But I think there's a lot of opportunity if, you know, there's a bit more sharing of ideas and perhaps innovation more broadly that all different types of firms can can benefit from. Yeah, perhaps absolutely. that's very idealistic, but I think, I think you know, it, it would be a, a really great outcome. No, no, I, I don't think it is idealistic. I mean, again, you know, part of the point of these podcasts when we're doing them, when we have guests on of, of all different types, is trying to just create a bit of inspiration for people who might get one or two ideas and think, well, actually, yeah, that's quite interesting. And you're absolutely right. If you can draw inspiration from stuff that's going on either within the close sector, if you like, the asset management sector versus the wealth sector and, and, and other adjacent industries, if I can put it that way, then great. And as ever, you know, quite often when we're running innovation sessions, you know, we draw inspiration from the most unlikely places, which then create great ideas. So um, if nothing else, I hope we might have stimulated some people who might be facing some of these challenges to think differently about some of them and, and to at least, you know, understand and recognise that we'll, we all see the challenges. And I, I think it's also fair to say before we close, you know, we consider ourselves to be in this industry. We're not pointing the finger at an industry. We absolutely are in it. You know, it's very much our lifeblood and, and one that we're all very interested and passionate about because of the, the nature of what it does for both the economy and society as a whole could, certainly could do. And it could do a lot more, I guess, is, is also what we're saying. So... So thank you for that. Well, thanks both of you. Been a really interesting conversation. Lots covered there. As I say, final advert for the white paper. If anyone wants to pick up a coffee, we, we've got one. And um, also goes without saying that if you want to speak to, to Mary, Leo or any other part of the team, then um, do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks very much. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, You can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.